0: Hello and welcome to Geoversi's Earth Intelligence Podcast. My name is Don Shelby. My co-host today, Joseph Robertson, Executive Director of Citizens Climate International, founder of Geoversi and lead strategist for the Climate Smart Finance Initiative. Our guest today is Dr. Jessica Hellman, Director of the University of Minnesota's Institute on the Environment and Ecolab Chair in Environmental Leadership. She is the Russell M. and Elizabeth M. Bennett Chair in Excellence in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior at the College of Biological Sciences. And she was among the first to propose and study ways to reduce climate change through new techniques in conservation management. And she spent a lot of her time showing that adaptation, living with a certain level of climate change, is as crucial as mitigating its sources. And Joe, this will be interesting to you. Her research led to the creation of a private venture, Geo Financial Analytics, that monitors methane emissions for investors in publicly traded companies. She was a contributing author to the 2014 National Climate Assessment. She earned her doctorate in biology from Stanford University. Dr. Hellman, welcome to Earth Intelligence.
1: It's great to be with you, Don and Joe. Thanks for having me.
0: First question. You're noted as being one of the best communicators of climate science. At this moment in time with all that is going on politically, with all that is going on in racial justice, with all that is taking up our time with COVID, what is the right message on climate change?
1: Wow, you go straight to the tough questions, huh? Right from the (laughs) get-go. I think the right message is that climate is not a specialty issue. It's not, at this point, even an environmental issue. It's about the future that we want to create and sustaining for ourselves and our planet a habitable, prosperous future. And another important message is that though tackling climate change will be difficult and involves hard choices, and it most certainly involves financial investments, there are lots and lots of what we call co-benefits or other good reasons to do it. Uh, from jobs to new investments in new technology and innovation. And so it's not just about the sacrifice that we need to make in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's about the journey we need to go on together.
0: Recently, I read in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a piece that you did working with a group on what is called, for most people, geoengineering. It's gotten a lot of attention.
1: This particular geoengineering technique that we wrote about is about reducing incoming sunlight as a way to reduce the heat of the earth. What is so interesting about that is that it may be a technique that as humanity, that humanity will need to consider. It's never something we would want to take on lightly. It could be quite challenging to pursue it and it could be quite expensive. But as we progress further into a future with greenhouse gas emissions, we might need other tools in our toolbox to reduce the heat load of the planet. But what's interesting about that is though climate, the climate community has begun talking about geoengineering, many of the rest of us who are very closely associated to climate science, we haven't really been part of that conversation. So this is a group of ecologists saying, wait a second, this, effort to manipulate the planet will most certainly have ecological impacts and we need to begin studying those. So it's really important to clarify or to explain that as a group of authors, we're not saying geoengineering should be pursued. We're saying it's an intriguing tool in the toolbox. And before we could ever think about using it, there's a lot of really important science and uh, research to be done because it will not only affect the temperature of the earth and humans on it, but every living thing that occupies the entire planet.
2: What has your work been able to reveal about how sensitive ecosystems are in terms of their health and resilience, their ability to stay in one place, stay intact when temperature changes or climatic conditions shift?
1: Well, one of the reasons why we uh, entered into this collaborative research project with these climate scientists around geoengineering is actually because ecologists weren't for the most part, aren't looking at geoengineering. But ecology as a discipline has exploded in the last, say, 20 years on studying climate impacts. So asking and answering the question, what will a warming climate mean for various species and organisms around the earth? In fact, myself in the Mid to late 90s was, I was maybe one of, among some of the first who asked this question, which sounds kind of strange in retrospect, or now that time has passed, we, we asked the question, what will a warmer temperature do to the population size or population dynamics of various species? And I was particularly interested in whether a changing climate could manipulate the relationship between species. This is between a herbivorous insect and its host plant. It seems, you know, in retrospect, it seems sort of an obvious question that, yes, when you manipulate the climatic conditions, you change ecosystems, but we didn't really have a sense at the time of the scope and scale of that. In the meantime, there have been studies everywhere around the world, and wherever you look, you see a, a deep relationship between ecological processes and climate. A simple way to think about that is that the vast majority meaning almost all, species on Earth are limited in where they live because of climatic conditions. So they're already dictated, their basic biology is strongly influenced by climate. When the climate changes, then that changes the conditions of their very livelihoods, their physiology, their interactions with other species. We know that historically, when the climate changes from studies of the paleo record, The species like to move. They will, they will change their geographic position as a way of keeping pace with changing climatic conditions. But there are a number of reasons why our modern world doesn't really allow for a lot of migration, not to mention the fact that they're the rate of change is quite fast. So you, you can see these kinds of processes emerging already. You can see species beginning to shift their ranges. You can see species declining in certain portions of their range where temperature has changed or precipitation has changed quite a bit. The reason why I'm interested in geoengineering is because previous to this recent paper, I've done a lot of work on adaptation. For ecologists, and I should say, what is adaptation? Adaptation would be managing systems, ecosystems, to help them tolerate climatic changing climatic conditions. So if you sort of look at how our discipline has evolved and changed, including my own work, first we said, what would be the impacts of a changing climate? Let's figure that out and then we began to say oh well if the climate is changing and it has impacts what are we going to do to reduce those or mitigate those or manage them through adaptation that was also quite controversial for a long period of time in ecology we don't we haven't traditionally um had sort of fond notions or ideas about humans mucking around and strongly manipulating ecosystems though we have many cases of it And I think geoengineering is another case of that. It is controversial. That makes it, of course, intellectually interesting. But it also is worthy of our attention in our research so that we can figure out, is there a safe operating space? And we've made a lot of progress on the climate change adaptation side in in terms of understanding what might be good practices and what is a little more treacherous and less effective.
0: No one seems to know yet what the unintended consequences might be. That is the
1: brilliant way to put it, Don. I think about it as side effects. Yes, unintended consequences. And what is important about adaptation and geoengineering, if it's the even more extreme form of human intervention, it's not. It's not a good idea. We, we, in many senses, that's not something we would be pursuing if we didn't need to. It's, not, it's an imperfect analogy, but I think it's a good one to think about, say, treating disease. A lot of drug treatments, say chemotherapy or radiation, these are not things that you would want to do if you were a healthy person. But confronted with a dangerous alternative, you need to evaluate whether or not these treatments lead to a better outcome. And almost always they have unintended side effects, and that needs to be part of the calculation of whether or not pursuing them is a good idea. So in the case, for example, I've done a bunch of work on um, the idea of humans facilitating the movement of species to help them adjust to changing climate conditions. So if species like to move when the climate changes and they can't because it's either too fast or there's something standing in the way, well, humans could help them along. And that could be a good idea. It might work depending on how you define success. But one uh, thing to be anxious about is the possibility that the species you introduce Runs amok, becomes a pest, becomes more detrimental than successful. And that would be an unintended consequence. So, the job of scientists is to figure out under what circumstances that might happen and ways of mitigating that risk. We did a study several years ago now that suggested that different types of species may be more or less risky with respect to becoming a pest if introduced plants might be less so, say, than uh, freshwater species. But there's, we still need more research on that.
0: The idea of migration corridors, I've heard the uh, subject discussed before. It was tough enough to uh, say the snail darter and the spotted owl. Do you think that the country is ready to say, yeah, I'll take uh, part of my farm and, and build a pathway so these animals can travel from one climate zone to another climate zone?
1: Well, that's a really deep question. There are so many different ways of probing that. So let me first say, when we're talking about unintended consequences and side effects, corridors would have those too. Other things, maybe things other than your target species might move through a corridor. Invasive species, for example, might move through a corridor. So even implementing a corridor, which ecologists tend to like that idea, they like creating permeable landscapes to allow biodiversity to adjust on its own. But even doing that has consequences. Of course, it has an important social consequence because it might be expensive. Is there another technique that might be more cost-effective to achieve the same goals? That said, it also strikes me that this is a shared responsibility. So when we think about private landowners, for example, wanting or needing to make corridors for the migration of species, it seems reasonable to me that as a society, we need to compensate and incentivize people for those kinds of behaviors. It's not reasonable to just walk in and say that someone, you know, has to take certain actions, but how can we create a policy and a management environment that facilitates those kinds of positive landscape management techniques and there are lots of policy platforms that we can build upon that do that. You know, land set asides are a possible tool, for example, that we're accustomed to using under the Farm Bill, other kinds of land easements. But thinking about a challenge would be thinking about how do you arrange those easement activities and those incentive programs so that you actually create an enduring and geographically connected series of habitats that would facilitate the movement of species.
2: You know, one of the complicated conversations in the global climate negotiations is how to fund adaptation. Yes. There is an adaptation fund. There is a global goal for adaptation, which is going to be discussed next week. And then there is this question of whether those have to be dedicated programs or whether they should be realigned incentives. So, for instance, could incentives for agricultural production include conditions requiring nature-positive production? And if so, could that help to provide the compensation you talked about? Are we moving towards a world where the financial system The mainstream everyday economy and national policy have to include real leverage for protecting nature. You know, if we look at the ecological science, if we look at what's happening to nature, are we at a point where we have to start doing that because the unintended consequences of inaction are just too serious?
1: Well, yes, absolutely. We are at a point where the unintended consequences of inaction are too serious, and we need to realign our economy so that the incentives for good behavior are also um, good business decisions. That, I believe, quite strongly. However, I thought you were also asking, if I understand you correctly, Joe, you're saying is the financial system aligned to do so. And I was thinking as you were talking, well, you know, what is today, Thursday? So maybe on a Thursday, my answer will be yes, I think we're moving in that direction. But maybe tomorrow, my answer will be no, I think we're not moving in that direction. It kind of varies. my own sense of where we're headed, frankly, is kind of variable. Sometimes I think yes, We are really seeing signals from big corporations. We're seeing global alignment around what those critical incentives need to be. You see the emergence of uh, environmental social governance indicators. This company that uh, I co-founded, Geo Financial Analytics, is very much about advancing that ESG world and being able to provide information about the behavior of in our case, methane emissions from the oil and gas industry so that we can line up capital investments with good behavior toward the companies that are best able to keep methane uh, being, from being released to the atmosphere. On the other hand, some other days I feel like That's more talk than action. As you alluded to, the size of the investments necessary both in mitigation and in adaptation are pretty daunting. And I don't know that we have really as a society wrapped our head around the scale of transition that's really necessary. And though I'm quite bullish and excited about the possibility of that transition, I think it can be managed well and I think it could be economically productive. I do in all honesty, feel time sort of slipping through our fingers. Uh, And I don't know if we're able to take bold enough action quickly enough.
2: You know, to me, this brings the question of resilience to the fore. And it gets a lot of attention from different people coming from different perspectives. Some people like the idea that if you say resilience, you can kind of do mitigation and adaptation and everyday business all at the same time. And other people think that that's suspicious. It seems like if we combine what we know scientifically about what's happening to the Earth system, what we know about the cost of resilience failure, right? COVID-19 is a tremendous resilience failure. It has a lot to do with unsustainable behaviors, and it's an order of magnitude beyond anything we thought we would be facing this soon. If we combine the science with what we know about resilience failure and a business like geofinancial analytics that's looking at methane emissions and helping finance to align, are we getting closer to a world where the financial sector doesn't look at ESG on a Friday and say, well, on Thursday, it looked good. And on Friday, I can make some money doing this other thing. Yeah. <laughs> but a world where they say, wait a minute, I can see that those actors that are on the wrong side of the math in terms of sustainability are undermining my entire portfolio. Yeah. Five, ten years in the future. And therefore I have to cut them out.
1: I think that's right. I think that ultimately ESG indicators are sound business practice indicators. I mean, that's what the governance part intends to capture, but I also think that these are businesses in principle that are well-run. They're likely to be good investments in the long run. And yes, they're not undermining, they're not enhancing risk, financial and other risk for all the rest of us. I think I, w- I would like also to say a little bit about this concept of resilience. You know, we're still kind of learning and wrapping our head around what resilience means, Ecologists have had for a long time a concept of resilience and that is the ability for a system to withstand stress and bounce back or restore itself in the face of that pressure and I think resilience is very very important concept for us to think about managing human systems and environmental systems for the for advancing resilience to me that's healthiness that is good strategy. But as a climate impacts person, and that's, I should also say, I work on these mitigation issues and these ESG things because I started working on climate impacts. And as I've advanced in my career, I've just diversified the different ways in which I'm engaged in these in these issues. I think that we At the same time, we need to recognize, just like I am have an open mind about thinking about geoengineering and about techniques for adaptation, there are likely to be limits to resilience. And while we should make every investment in it, and it's going to produce all these win-win benefits, it might not be enough in some cases. And we're going to need to accept and to plan for those occasions where resilience doesn't cut it. And we'll need to allow the system to make major modifications. That might mean that, you know, people's livelihoods or their health or their safety, uh, we might not be able to address with resilience alone. And we'll need to take bolder adaptation measures or allow or expect those systems to be taking more uh, bold steps.
2: Would it be helpful for for people who don't know where the line is between mitigation adaptation and resilience to, could, could it be said this way? We have to mitigate the threat by reducing emissions so that there's less overall risk. We have to build resilience because that's ideally our safe operating space. And then we have to be prepared to adapt intelligently so that when there is cost, we manage it and we reduce the overall harm.
1: Yeah and I think again intuitively it's probably um useful to think about this like managing health. Resilience is our 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 wellness, our um healthy diet, our exercise, are doing everything in our power to make our individual bodies as flexible and durable, healthy immune system so it can withstand stress. Uh, we need to mitigate the risk, you know, We wear a face mask now in a COVID era so that we reduce the likelihood that we pick up a disease. That's reducing risk around us. Maybe that's analogous to mitigation. When we get sick, when we have an illness, we have to confront it sometimes with more aggressive steps like drugs, for example, and maybe that's analogous to the adaptation, the more interventionist actions we're going to have to take in order to reduce the biggest impacts. When we think about managing health, we wouldn't pick any one of those. We might prioritize one over the other, but we have to be able to switch among them and to thoughtfully manage the this human body system, you know, we need to manage our earth systems and our socio-ecological systems as thoughtfully as we think about um, managing health.
0: Jessica, you're dealing a lot with college people, young people who are idealistic, hopeful, and very smart with a direction toward climate change, toward ecology, uh, toward science. I have great hope for these young people. I believe they're the answer. Tell me my hope is not misplaced.
1: I think your hope is very well placed. Uh, We're talking here at the end of an academic semester, and I've been grading final reports in a class I teach called Living the Good Life at the End of the World. And so I'm now seeing the fruits of my students' labor who've spent the semester working on projects, which... Represent their um, greatest sustainability interests, and they have to, they've been asked to, um, to find a space where the scientific information interfaces with their values and the world they're trying to create for themselves and for others. Uh, I think it's just really invigorating to watch them grapple with these issues, and they have really thoughtful uh, ideas about it. I think one of the most important, which is quite different than the way my generation, when we were talking about environmental issues, is how much interrelated these they see these issues as being racial justice, climate change, economic inequality. They see those as interrelated. I think that gives us probably a better chance of actually addressing these considerations if we see them as interconnected and realize that they are. At the same time, I do also feel a little sad I think it's an extraordinarily, um, large burden, uh, for a young person to take on to be entering a young professional life. In the case of, uh, our graduates, you know, college graduates are starting careers. Um, they're trying to make their way through the world and it's pretty daunting. So while I have tremendous hope and I can see in their projects that they have spectacular ideas and are deeply committed to building a sustainable future, Um, it's a lot for them to carry. So I think of all of us uh, who are on the other side of college uh, or university life, we still have to go on this journey with them. Uh, It cannot be left to them. Uh, And I, I also feel that as that great responsibility as a teacher and professor.
2: Does it simplify things maybe a little bit for us to think about it as one big project spanning all of the living generations? This is something we all have to do together now.
1: I think it is. This is why we call this class, you know, living the good life. We say living the good life at the end of the world. It's a little bit tongue in cheek. We hope that we are not at the end of the world. But. But it's attempting to say that, yes, what, what we're doing as a human civilization is we're striving, right? We're trying. This is what life is about. It's about finding purpose and value, community, interaction with one another, um, concern for uh, each other and for the other creatures that live on this earth and on which we depend. And I think that is a constant project. Uh, we're at a moment of, I think, a point of inflection Um but in some ways, perhaps the issues confronting this generation and the grand pro- the aspects of the grand project that they're confronted with, maybe they have some similarity with other grand challenges that have come before. I think we have to be positive that, that some of these solutions we're going to discover are, are really going to help us. And what I think the challenge is for young people today is they're going to need to define what is the good life that doesn't rely on some of the things that their previous generation, the immediately previous generations think of as the good life, like buying a lot of stuff and then throwing it away or energy intensive activities. And I think there's a lot of good life that we can discover that maybe don't realize in our hyper consumer culture, the joy of living and working in proximity, for example, and not having to be on the freeway or the uh, pleasure of spending time in nature. These kinds of things, in there lies a lot of prosperity. We just need to define it as such.
0: Our guest has been Dr. Jessica Hellman of the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota. Jessica, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Don. And that's it for this episode of GeoVersive's Earth Intelligence Podcast. Thank you very much for being with us. If you want a deeper dive, go to GeoVersive.net and read all about it. For all of our episodes, go to earthintel.org. Thank you very much for being with us for this episode. And we hope you'll join us for our next one coming up next week. Talk to you then.